Good evening and welcome to Murders, Mysteries, and Meows, where we will be telling you about murders of all ilk, young and old, new and old, solved and unsolved, mysteries of all kinds, and of course, cats. I'm your host, June. And I'm Chris. And tonight, we will be discussing Edmund Kemper, also known as the co-ed killer. Hey, June. Yes. You should probably tell our listeners a little bit about yourself so they know where exactly you're coming from. That makes sense. Uh, okay, my name is June. I have been a true crime fan and fanatic for basically my entire life. I grew up reading Nancy Drew, and then I graduated to um, the Cat Who books. My grandmothers were both crazy cat ladies who also loved true crime, so I would watch uh, Murder, She Wrote with them as well. Um, once I was older and it came out, I began watching The New Detectives and reading Anne Rule. Who are you? I'm your sidekick, but also like your foil. <laughs> okay. I suppose that's pretty good information. Yeah, that's all they need to know. <laughs> I'm a mystery in myself. <laughs> all right, anyway, back to Ed Kemper. He was born in 1948 to his parents, Clarnell and Edmund Emil Kemper II. Uh, he was Edmund Emil Kemper III. And he had an older sister and a younger sister, but he was the only boy. His father was a World War II vet who tested nuclear weapons after the war. Ooh, hold on a sec. So is dad like a scientist or a pilot or just someone who was watching bombs go off? Or what exactly was he? Um, you know, I don't recall offhand, but a quote we have from him was that, quote, suicide missions in wartime and the atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with her and that Clarnell affected him more than 396 days and nights of fighting on the front did. End quote. Wow. What a bitch. <laughs> yeah, she does not sound like the, um, doesn't sound like she's likely to win an award for best parent. Anyway, with an endorsement like that, and her being also described as neurotic, alcoholic, and a domineering um, <laughs> bitch, basically, um, it shouldn't be a surprise that she and Ed had a pretty dysfunctional relationship. She would mock him and belittle him, at least in part due to his size, because he was significantly larger than his peers at all of stages of his life. That doesn't make any sense. If someone's, like, big, like, the big guy, like, why would you want to make fun of him? Especially when you're a parent. Why would you? I don't know. Because she's not a good person? Mm, I guess. I guess in some aspects I can have some sympathy for her because he was 13 pounds when he was born. Oh, she's just going to hold that against him the rest of his life? Apparently. Apparently she was also very concerned that because he was, uh, he was so large that he was going to rape or molest his sisters. Sure, that makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. She also refused to uh, show him affection or hug him or say nice things because she didn't want to, quote, turn him gay, unquote. I see. Because that's how that works, you know, obviously. Well, you know, back then they didn't know any better. I don't really know what to say about that because, yeah, to me, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Well, you know, back then it was a choice and today it's genetics. Well, maternal affection wouldn't necessarily turn somebody gay. I would maybe see arguing paternal affection could. Obviously it doesn't, and I don't feel that way, but I can maybe see that argument point. Mm. Oh well, moving on. True. 
Anyway, as a kid, Ed showed, uh, he didn't have all the triad sands that we know of. He definitely showed cruelty towards animals, uh, particularly cats. But I was not able to read anything about him having extended bedwetting or fireciding. Does that make you particularly hate him more, that he tortured cats, specifically? No, because a lot of animals did. Or a lot of animals, a lot of uh, budding serial killers did. But it was still pretty horrible. But they didn't have dogs, they just had cats when he was growing up. I see. So it's likely that he probably would have done that to dogs, too. Okay. But no, that just the fact that he tortured cats doesn't make me hate him more than other killers who didn't torture cats. Or tortured other animals that were not cats. I see. He also had this very bizarre game that he would play with his sister. Um, they'd play either gas chamber or electric chair, in which he would sit in a chair, and she would flip a switch to either electrocute him or to drop the tablets and fill the gas chamber with fatal uh, smothering fumes. How and old were they when they were doing that? I don't know, actually. I think he was like seven to nine. I see. That's interesting that he knew how the gas chamber worked. Yeah. I didn't really find out about that until I was in high school when my football coach was the former uh, former warden for San Quentin and was in charge of gassing people back in the day. Oh, shit. That's, that's pretty intense. Indeed. So it's kind of funny that a kid would know. Yeah. That is indeed. Um, yeah, he didn't specify when he and his sister were playing that game, or they didn't otherwise specify. I think that's what time it was, but I'm not positive on that. Okay. He also um, enjoyed decapitating his sister's Barbies and cutting off their hands. And while I understand that a lot of kids and brothers in particular will pull off Barbie's heads, uh, they don't also necessarily cut off Barbie's hands. I mean, every guy goes through a phase of messing with Barbie dolls. So, yeah. You know. I'm not saying anything. I'm not disagreeing with that. But just constantly decapitating his sister's Barbies and cutting off their hands. Especially with what, uh, what we know about him and his actions in later life. It makes it exceptionally creepy. Oh, that's an interesting thing, though. What was his relationship like with his sister's? It doesn't really talk about them too much. It seems like they got along well enough, but again, like I said, he, I, this is just my guessing. I wouldn't be surprised if he held some um, resentment towards them, as we'll hear about a little bit later, with how his uh, mom treated him compared to them. Okay. Uh, his parents got divorced in, ni- in 1957, and the nine-year-old Kemper moved with his mom and his sisters to Montana. This is especially hard for Ed because he had felt very close to his dad, and as we had discussed, his mother was a horrible, horrible person. Eventually, his mom, like, came up briefly, became terrified that he would rape or molest his sisters, and so she took to locking him in the basement. Not just having him sleep somewhere else, locking him in the basement. Hmm. You know, dark, dark, dank, windowless room that he had to go down into by himself and sleep in there. And his mom and his sisters would go upstairs and sleep in the nice beds in the bedrooms. I 
wonder if they were really all that nice. I mean, what was the like financial circumstance? I mean, were they poor, or you know, was his mom regularly working or anything? I would assume, at least to some extent, that any bedroom is going to seem nice when you're forced to sleep in a basement. True. So, at least in his uh, perception, they were nice. Um, when he was turned 14, he ran away to Southern California to try and live with his dad, but his father had since remarried, and his new stepmother and stepbrother did not appreciate Ed being around. He was six foot four at this point, and he had poor social skills. Man, a 14-year-old running away from Montana to Southern California, that's a hell of a long ways to go. Yeah. How does a 14-year-old get that far? Hitchhiking, probably. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Co-ed killer is hitchhiking to get somewhere. Well, presumably. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if he had money or not to... These messes. To get anywhere. It didn't really detail how he got home. Or how he got to his dad. Hmm. Yeah. Um, like I said, his father didn't want Ed around because he made no effort to socially interact appropriately with his stepmother and his stepbrother. And in fact, his stepmother was pretty unnerved by him and basically told Edmund's father, Ed Kemper II, hey, it's your son or it's me. So his father sent him back to live with his mother. He was then, and his mother didn't want him around, he didn't want to be around his mother, so he ended up getting sent to live with his paternal grandparents in California. And he apparently hated being there and hated living with these grandparents. On August 27, 1964, Kemper and his grandmother Maud got into an argument over his shooting birds or taking his twenty two rifle out to go hunting, which back then was a pretty common thing for farm boy. Or a farm, anybody living on a farm. Mm-hmm. They had an argument, and he shot her in the head and in the back twice. He then stabbed her. The reason? Quote, I just wondered how it would feel to shoot Grandma. End quote. Man, you know, I, I hear something like that, and I'm like, either this guy is psychotic, or there was more of a buildup between this uh, relationship with him and his grandma you know it, it's usually there's got to be something more right probably uh, apparently she was supposed to be fairly similar to his mother her daughter-in-law who apparently Maude also greatly disliked Clarnell but instead of the two of them being able to discuss this and bond over their mutual hatred of her Ed saw her as being too similar to his mother Clarnell and that made him angrier Ah, there it is. Yeah. Ed also saw the way that Maude interacted with her husband, Kemper's grandfather, Edmund Emil Kemper I, and thought that the way she treated him was, um, truly hated, he hated watching how she treated him. What he may not have known or been cognizant of is the fact that his grandfather was in the early stages of dementia. And so Maude went from being a wife and partner to essentially having to be a caregiver. And anybody who's dealt with somebody with dementia realizes how frustrating that can be, how difficult it is to watch somebody 
as well as how much work it is to, to sort of helicopter over them and somewhat micromanaging them. It's not easy to do, and especially if you're doing it to somebody who was your partner and your equal, it's really hard. So I was very likely unaware of this um, shift in their relationship, so he only saw her, Maude, as being overbearing and difficult and very, very much like his, um, his very hated mother. He then decided that since he had shot his grandmother, he didn't want his grandfather to see what he had done, so he went out as his grandfather was pulling up the driveway and shot him. After he shot them, he then didn't know what to do again, so of all things and of all people, he called his mom. Mm-hmm. I know, it's like, what? He didn't want to call his dad because he just killed his dad's parents, so he didn't want to admit that to his dad. But he called his mom. I mean, uh, what, what at this point did he do with the bodies? I mean, He just he left them there. Just left them? Mm-hmm. Mm. I've seen different reports on that he dragged his grandmother's body into a bedroom, put her on the bed, and then just kind of looked at her, stabbed her a bunch because he wanted to make sure she was dead and or because he was still very angry at her. And then he just left his grandfather in the driveway. Mm. Yeah, I know, very odd. Uh, he, so he called his mom, and she told him, and she managed to convince him to call 911, so he did, and then just waited there for them to come get him. Once he was taken into custody and taken to court and was being viewed by, be, viewed by psychiatrists and all of the similar folk, they felt that his actions were beyond comprehension for a 15-year-old and so that he had to have something significantly wrong with him and he got diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and sent to a Tascadero State Hospital. But while he was at the hospital, the staff didn't really agree with the paranoid schizophrenia diagnosis because he was not seen as being uh, disordered in thinking, having bizarre thoughts, hallucinations, flightful ideas, delusions, or interference with his thought. He seemed to be very... um, his thinking and his thought process and actions seemed fairly normal for what one would expect of a 15-year-old discounting the fact that he had just murdered people. Uh, while he was there, they tested his IQ and it came back in the near genius range. Because of the fact that he was very smart and he was also very easygoing and helpful and wanted to interact with people and was a model, basically a what model patient prisoner. They had eventually had him giving psych tests to other inmates. You're telling me that they had a guy who was in there for murdering his grandparents start giving psych evals to the other crazies in the crazy house? Yes. Well, yes, but sort of no. They weren't necessarily crazy. They were psych evals to decide if they were crazy. Ah, so let the crazy guy determine if other people are crazy. I got it. (laughs) No. That makes perfect sense. (laughs) No, he gives them the test and writes down their answers. He's not the one who determines what the answers are correct or not. Hmm. It's like an ABC. You feel this way, that way, or the other. Mark it down. But yes, no, I I very much agree that was uh, not great, especially because as he was administering the tests, he learned how to pass them. He learned what answers the doctors wanted to hear and what was the right thing to say to pass the test and be able to 
hide his behavior and thoughts. He also learned from the other inmates about crimes and what things to do or what things not to do, specifically not to leave witnesses. So after he'd learned how to pass all the tests and was able to convince them that he was uh, cured and a ready to be a good citizen, he was released at the age of 21 in 1969. Nice. <laughs> and against the very strong relationship against the very strong recommendations of the psychiatrist, he was released into his mother's care. He had hoped to be a cop, but his size, at this point he was 6'9 and almost 300 pounds. 6'9? 6'9. Nice. (laughs) He was considered too big. I'm not sure what the size requirements are to be a police, or at least what they were in 1969, but he was too big. Since he couldn't actually be a cop, he became sort of a cop groupie, hanging out at the cop bar, talking to them, and just sort of being there. He would pass himself off as just that kind of lovable goof, the big, you know, kind of oafish guy who hung out with them, liked them, and bought them drinks. Huh, interesting. So the guy who wanted to be a cop or wanted to hang around cops... Decided to become a serial killer. Got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, since he was hanging out with the cops, this would allow him deeper insight and understanding into the case as it uh, kept going and was being investigated. He also was working for Caltrans, or California Department of Transportation, for anybody who's not from California. Work is a strong word when talking about Caltrans. Mm-hmm. Depends on the person. There are people in Caltrans who work very hard. He may or may not have been one of them, but... Yeah, and they usually have 18 supervisors. <laughs> They're half of them are on break. <laughs> Regardless, that point aside, working with the Department of Transportation allowed him to become very familiar with the area of Santa Cruz and its sort of little back areas and hideaway corners and out-of-the-way places, which would then be very useful to him in his murderous career. Let me guess. The serial killings all start with Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, okay, then. Uh, his mom worked at UCSC, or the University of, Santa, University of California in Santa Cruz, and Kemper had a sticker for the university on his car so he could easily get on campus to pick her mom, to pick her up. But she, again, being the wonderful mother she is, really emphasized to him that he wasn't good enough for those girls. Don't look at him. Don't pan after him. You don't deserve them. You're not good enough to get the college girls. Back then, hitchhiking was still a pretty common form of transportation, although it was starting to uh, decline, lessening in the tragedies of the late 60s, the Manson family, the Santa Rosa hitchhiker, Randy Kraft, and Zodiac, just to name a few of the reasons hitchhiking stopped as well as just sort of the whole transition from the 1969 Summer of Love into the 70s. I don't understand. How does transitioning from the 60s to 70s make hitchhiking less prevalent? I think people were just more aware of how evil other humans could be to each other. At some point prior to May, he moved to an apartment in the neighboring county of Alameda. All right, this next part describes uh, very graphic murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. So we're finally getting to the good part. Uh, I suppose you could say that. The background information was pretty important, too, though, to understand how he was able to get away with everything. 
Um, his third and fourth murders, not counting the murder of his grandparents, the ones that are considered his first co-ed murders, happened on May 7th, 1972, Marianne Pesci and Anita Lucesa. He picked up these two girls who were hitchhiking from Fresno State to Stanford. Stanford and Fresno are about three hours apart, so it wasn't a huge long distance for them to be traveling. So where did Ed pick them up? Uh, he actually picked them up in Berkeley, which is in Alameda County, where he lived, and on the pretext of driving them the rest of the way to Stanford. I see. So was he just driving around Berkeley, like looking for people to murder, or was he actually trying to pick them up and take them to Stanford? It's a little bit hard to say specifically because he, by his estimate, he picked up and safely delivered about 150 hitchhikers. But every time he went out um, trolling or searching for hitchhikers, he would go a little bit farther. The first time, first bunch of times he picked up hitchhikers, nothing. Second time, you know, the second round he had a knife in the car. Then he'd add rope. Then he had a gun. So he kept escalating what he'd have in the car, but he would still deliver the hitchhikers safely to their destination. So what you're saying is he was building up to or planning to murder someone by this point. Yes. Okay. More some additional people. To not forget, he's already killed his grandparents. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And are all the people that he's picking up, all these hitchhikers, are they all women? Yes. Specifically, they are college co-eds, um, young women or attractive women, who he is constantly being told that he's not good enough for. Oh, so he's going to pick up the women that uh, he can't pick up, according to his bitch of a mom. Yes, according to her, and also probably to some extent according to his own self-esteem. Apparently he tried to go on a date or two and it did not go well. Uh, somehow he managed to get uh, Lucasa out of the car and locked her into the trunk. It doesn't specify how he did that. And once she was in the trunk, he began strangling and stabbing Pesci to death. In a later statement, he explained that it was much harder than he expected from watching movies. He said, quote, I stabbed Pesci and she didn't fall dead. They're supposed to fall dead. I've seen it all the movies. It doesn't work that way. When you stab someone, they leak to death, he said. It wasn't working worth a damn. I stabbed her all over. End quote. And since he couldn't bring himself to stab her through the breasts because he didn't feel comfortable touching her on the chest, he decided to just slit her throat instead. After killing Pesha, he went back to the trunk and opened it and then stabbed and strangled Lucessa to death. Once these two co-eds were dead and in his trunk, he drove back to his apartment, waited for it to get dark and his roommate to be out and then he carried both bodies up into his bedroom where he then decapitated them and placed their heads in plastic trash bags. Once the heads were in the trash bags he then proceeded to cut up the bodies in the bathtub and he said quote holding a severed head in my hand I'd say this is insane Kemper said with a girl there's a lot left in a girl's body without a head of course the personality is gone he said. He also took uh, special enjoyment in using the heads for sexual acts. Try to give himself a little head? Yep. Well, not just trying, but he did. After uh, a couple of days after the murder, he disposed of the bodies and body pieces in multiple locations, but he held onto the heads for a little bit longer until they began to decompose. On September 14th, 1972, he picked up a 15-year-old named Aiko Ku, who was hitchhiking to a dance class in San Francisco after she missed her bus. He got in the car, and after driving her and ending up in a remote location, he threatened her with a gun. And 
somehow he managed to lock himself out of his car. So she was locked in his car with the car keys and presumably the gun. And it just goes to show his uh, deep understanding of psychology. He was able to convince her to unlock the door and let him back in. He had told her initially, initially that he wanted to kill himself and he didn't want to go alone, so he was going to kill somebody else. But that after spending time with her and talking to her, he was no longer suicidal. And he was able to convince her to unlock the door for him. He repaid her kindness by uh, murdering her. He raped and strangled her. On the way home after this, he stopped at the bar, presumably the one he usually hung out with with the cops, and stopped to get a drink with her body still in the trunk. He then took her body back to the apartment, dismembered, and raped it. Insanely, the day after he did this to Aiko Ku, he had a psychology appointment. On his way to the appointment, he stopped and disposed of the body parts along the way, but he kept the head in his trunk still. He went into his appointment, and all of the people he talked to, all of the therapists, gave him a glowing review and talked about how well he was doing, how well-adjusted he was, how if they hadn't seen his psych reports and known his history, they would never have any idea that he was no danger to himself or anyone else. But while, as they're saying this, he has the head of a 15-year-old murder victim in his trunk. You know, this speaks volumes to either, you know, how devious and deceptive this guy is, or speaks volumes to the quacks who are actually talking to him. I'd say more so about his deviousness, because don't forget, he spent six years in a psych ward learning how to play the system, how to answer all the questions the way they wanted stuff answered. Well, I guess it's all paying off now. Yeah. <laughs> Horrifically for other, other people. Uh, by November 29th of 1972, he had moved back in with his mother. On January 8th of 1973, he picked up Cindy Shaw, and instead of strangling her the way he had with other victims or stabbing, he shot her with a 22 caliber pistol. He waited until his mom was asleep, and then he carried the body up into his bedroom, and he put it in the closet. The next morning, after his mom went to work, he raped the body, dismembered it in the bathtub, and again disposed of the pieces of the body. But again, he kept the head for sexual acts. Several days later, once he was done with the head, he buried it in the backyard and had it looking up at his mom's window because she always wanted people to, quote, look up to her, end quote. I see. Uh, by this point, between Kemper and Mullen, there was a lot of warnings for college girls out to not get in the car with hitchhikers. Okay, so who's Mullen? Ah, uh, yes. Herbert Mullen is another serial killer who's active at the same time as Kemper. Okay. Brief geography lesson for anybody who's not familiar with the California Central Coast area. Santa Cruz, uh, to get started, it is a small to medium surf city located about 75 miles south of San Francisco and about 350 miles north of LA. It has a community college, Cabrillo, and a premier university, which we briefly mentioned, UCSC, or University of California in Santa Cruz. According to Wikipedia and locals, the generally accepted area of Santa Cruz, Watsonville, Scotts Valley, and Capitola is about 25 square miles. And in 2010, it had a population of 132,650. Presumably, it would have been much smaller in 1973, but the fact that there are two active serial killers simultaneously in this small geographical area it's pretty stunning, and it's why Santa Cruz got the uh, nickname Murder Capital of the World for a while. 
I see. Yes, we'll talk about Milan another time, but the word was out, do not hitchhike, because a lot of people that they're finding, both Mullen's victims and campers, were uh, presumed hitchhikers. UCSC students especially were warned not to hitchhike since they lived on a campus as opposed to living in a house with parents or somebody else to watch over for them. But this is where we see Kemper's deviousness come into play ex- uh, extraordinarily and especially. He had a sticker, a campus sticker from his mother, allowing him easy access on and off campus. So when the students saw this sticker, they felt safe getting in the car with him. Hmm, I see. Yep. On February 5th, he picked up 23-year-old Rosalind Thorpe and 20-year-old Allison Liu, his 7th and 8th victims, and the two that would be his final co-ed victims. He shot both of them with a 22 caliber pistol. And in a change from his previous motives, he decapitated them in his trunk as opposed to in the house. And he took the headless bodies up to his room, where he then raped and dismembered them. And this time he removed the bullets. He then also dismembered the bodies and scattered the remains around. Did not specify if he did anything particular with the heads differently than he had with his other victims. April 20th was the breaking point for him. His mom woke him up after coming home from a party, and when he heard her, he got up and walked over towards her doorway. When she saw him there, she said, quote, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. Kemp replied, no, good night, end quote. After that, he waited for 52-year-old Clarnell to fall asleep. Then, while she was asleep, he took a claw hammer and bludgeoned her before slitting her throat. He decapitated her and raped her head, then used it as a dartboard, put it on a shelf and screamed at it, literally just screaming and yelling at it for an hour or two, and then he eventually, quote, cut out her tongue and larynx and put them in the garbage disposal. However, the garbage disposal could not break down the tough vocal cords and injected the tissue back into the sink. That seemed appropriate, Kemper later said, as much as she'd bitched and screamed and yelled at me over so many years, end quote. After hiding the decapitated body of his mother, he called his mother's best friend, Sally Hallett over for a surprise dinner and a movie for his mom. The reason why he did this with Sally is not entirely clear. When she arrived, he punched her, strangled, and then decapitated her. The next morning, on April 21st, he left and spent several days driving over a thousand miles to Colorado, listening to the radio for reports that the bodies had been discovered. When nothing was heard, he decided to stop and call the police on April 24th. So he called the Santa Cruz police and tried to turn himself in, but incredibly, nobody believed him. They refused to believe him and thought he was joking. He had to call a couple times and convince them to go check the house and see the bodies there and realize that he actually was the co-ed killer. And then he just waited quietly for the Colorado police to come arrest him. When asked why he could call and asked why he turned himself in, he said, quote, And my mind was slowly just beginning to unravel. I had lost control of my body. I had experienced this in the killing of our grandparents when I was 15. I just completely lost control of myself. But as far as my mind went, I had realized what was going on and I couldn't stop it. End quote. So what you're saying is he had, like, what, a change of heart and decided he needs to stop and just turn himself in? I... Don't know. I think the big thing was his mom was the ultimate target. His mother was the, basically, reason for all of his hate and unhappiness and misery in his life. At least in his opinion, she was the cause of all of his problems. Mm. So once he killed her, he didn't want to keep killing. Um, He said he just, quote, wore out of it. 
end quote. I see. Interesting. Yeah. Also interesting, um, he and Mullen were incarcerated near each other at the Santa Cruz jail, and the two did not get along, apparently. I see. <laughs> Kemper was more than a foot taller than Mullen, who was relatively diminutive, and Kemper would call Mullen Herbie, which he hated. Mullen also had a tendency to annoy the other inmates by singing loudly when they were trying to watch TV, and so Mullen began uh, throwing water on him when he would do this to get him to stop singing. Mullen also liked uh, peanuts, so when Mullen would behave and not sing and then be polite and ask for peanuts, uh, Kemp would give them to Mullen, and he's talking about how that is uh, psychological and behavioral training. Training him like a dog. Indeed, which is both disturbing and fascinating. Uh, Kemper is notoriously famous or infamous for being able to analyze and explain himself, as well as analyze and possibly explain other killers, and he has spent many, many hours talking to Robert Kessler and John Douglas of BSU and Mindhunter fame. He is currently serving eight concurrent life sentences in Vacville, California, and he no longer applies for parole because he does not feel that he would be able to control himself if he were not in prison. Well, to be fair, I don't think anybody on the parole board is going to let him out even uh, on good behavior. Probably not, but at least he's not tying up the system and taking time, forcing people to deal with it. I suppose. You want to say he's a good guy for doing that? I mean, it's better than... It's at least something, I guess. He's still a terrible person, for sure. But at least he's not forcing many more people to live through that every three or seven years or whatever it is that they're allowed to apply for. And after this interesting and deeply disturbing story, it's a perfect time for some feline fun. Did you know that cats can be trained to and often actually enjoy walking on a leash? I refuse to believe that anything or anyone enjoys being walked on a leash, except for, you know, a certain group of uh, kinky people. Perhaps, but uh, they still enjoy going out and walking around. True. If they're not on a leash, then it's not walking, they're just out running around. And depending on where you live and what's going on, that is not a safe option for a lot of places. Uh, kind of like where we're at because of all the coyotes. Yep, or cities where there's a lot of cars and a lot of other places where there's cars, people, coyotes, other dangers, all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Even adult cats can be leash and harness trained. Not all of them, but many can. If you do want to do this with your cat, start slow. Get a harness and put it on them. If they are resistant, or as many cats do, they just act as though gravity has suddenly become ten times more powerful... Just put it on, leave it on for a little bit, and then take it off. Then put it on and feed them with it on. If they free feed, pick up the food a couple of hours before you put the harness on. Then when you put the harness on, and hopefully at that point they're at least a little bit hungry. So at this point, go ahead and put the harness on and put their food down for them. Hopefully they will feel comfortable enough to eat at least a little bit. If not quite yet, then pick up the food for a little bit, take off the harness, and wait an hour or two, then try again. Again, baby steps. This might take a while before the cat is willing to wear the harness without obvious discomfort. Uh, once they are harness trained, then the next step would be working on leech training, but that's something we can discuss on another day. Thank you very much for listening to Murders, Mysteries, and Meows. Again, I'm June. I'm Chris. And thank you for following us. Bye.